Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin. Welcome to the Guardians of Finance podcast. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. In this episode, we talk with Fred Cummings, president and founder of Elizabeth Park Capital Management. Fred is a passionate supporter of everything Northeast Ohio. He grew up in Akron, went to Oberlin College where he played football, started his career at some well-known Cleveland firms, and even named his current firm after a place close to his childhood home. In this conversation, we touch on many topics in Fred's background, and given his expertise as a bank analyst, we get his thoughts on the recent turmoil in regional banks. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode with one of Cleveland's finest, Fred Cummings. Fred, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I look forward to participating. Yeah, this is going to be a good conversation. So Fred, just as a jumping off point, tell us a little about your childhood. If I understand it right, you grew up in Akron. Is that is that correct? Yes, that's right. Grew up in a neighborhood, Elizabeth Park, which happened to be 10 minutes from Akron, St. Vincent's, St. Mary, uh, where Mr. LeBron James honed his uh, skills. And he even played in our neighborhood uh, gym when he was a youngster and growing up on the north side of Akron. For my first big decision in life was to leave public school, uh, having attended North High School. I decided to matriculate to Western Reserve Academy in Hudson, Ohio, my junior year, graduated from Western Reserve Academy, and then went on to Oberlin College. But growing up on the north side of Akron taught me hard work, grit, perseverance. And that's the very reason I named my business Elizabeth Park. And it doesn't hurt that my wife's maiden name is Park as well. But but that's the backstory with the Elizabeth Park name. Sure. So what made you decide to go to Oberlin College here and, and stay local? I'm sure you had maybe some options to go other places. What made you stay local? So two things. One is my football coach at Western Reserve Academy. Upon leaving Western Reserve Academy, he became an assistant coach at Oberlin College and he recruited me heavily. And secondly, my parents, who were my biggest fans, they don't fly on planes and they wanted to see me play and I wanted them to be able to see me play. So I had to go somewhere which was in driving distance and and that helped Oberlin. And then and lastly, and maybe this is the first thing I should say, Oberlin has a great academic reputation. And I said I could be a student athlete uh, there. And I, unfortunately, I met my wife there as well. But those were the reasons why I chose Oberlin and really had a great experience majoring in economics and, and really preparing me for the business world upon graduation. Sure. What made you choose economics? Is that something that you always knew you wanted to major in? Or was that maybe a realization you had midway through? Tell us about your decision there. 
Yes. So, Matt, I was always interested in business. And unfortunately, with Oberlin being a liberal arts school, they had no business major. So economics was the thing that was most closely aligned with business. But while at Oberlin, more importantly, I went to the Mudd Library every day to read the first page of the Wall Street Journal, you know, column A, which really summarizes the story. So I didn't read each article in detail, but I had a good summary of what some of the key business issues were. And I was very interested in investing in Wall Street. And I've always been a big fan of Warren Buffett. And I said, one day, I'd really like to become an investor like Warren Buffett. And so all of those factors together led me to want to learn more about business and major in economics or where I graduated with honors in economics. And it really helps me now because you know you're an investor and I'm an investor and looking at really the econometrics of modeling cause and effect, which is what you try to do with stocks. And sometimes it's not as correlated as one might think, the fundamentals with the stock price, but that's how it works longer term. We discussed this a little bit in preparation for the podcast, but I'm not sure how many of the guests know, but Fred and I share the fact that we are washed up division three football meatheads. <laughs> so I got to ask you about your career at Oberlin. Tell me how your career was one and give me a football story there that you still remember that maybe is a, a funny one or, or an entertaining one. You look to be in a lot better shape than me, Matt, though. So you, <laughs> you, you, you play quarterback. I played running back at Oberlin. And we had a competitive team, but we didn't win many games, unfortunately. But we played for the love of the game. And that was everyone's last shot at glory. But the highlight of my career as running back was that one game, and I forget, maybe we were playing till college. We're on the one our one-yard line, and we are running the wishbone. And somehow I broke through the line and scored a 99-yard touchdown, which is, I think, one of the longest in Oberlin's history, or at least tied for the longest, and maybe the, one of the longest touchdowns in North Coast Athletic Conference history. So that's my claim to fame. I think I am at least tied for the record of the longest rushing touchdown in the conference. But I, I love playing running back, and I love being an athlete, frankly, all my life, because I remember playing midget football when I was eight years old. And that was the best, best time of my life playing midget football in North Akron. And, and that's where I developed a love for the game. But in high school, though, I actually played football, ran track. and But in college, I said I only could do one thing. But Oberlin, it's an academic institution and we were competitive, but we didn't win many games. And I, I try to help the student school out today, man. I got to try to recruit some good student athletes and I got to talk to you about that as well. <laughs> <laughs> good, good to hear. Now, I got to ask you the million dollar question with the, a 99 yard touchdown run. Were you tired at the end of it? <laughs> <laughs> or were you jazzed up because you scored a touchdown? How was your condition? I, I, think, I think I was pretty jazzed up because I was a light 175 of halfback, and I didn't get too tired in college. Now I get tired if I run 10 yards, I get tired now. But but back then I was in great shape. It was exciting though. It was exciting because I didn't have too many moments like that. But I almost rushed for a thousand yards one season. And this is the worst thing that happened to me while I was in college was that running out of the wishbone again 
one of my dependable right tackles allowed a defensive tackle to knife in. They hit me on the side of my knee, and then I stretched ligaments in my right leg. And that was really the only serious injury I sustained while playing football at Oberlin. And that really ended my career because I think that was next to the last game of the season, senior year. And I was on my way to rush for a thousand yards. So that's probably my biggest disappointment, not reaching that thousand yard threshold. Sir, sure. I think all of us who who played have those little things that you know. If this wouldn't have happened, there was the, <laughs> yeah, the result. And so that's it's part of the love and the hate of the game. So that's fun to hear about. So you know, you're at Oberlin College. You're no offense, 175 pounds. You knew you weren't going to the NFL. I think. What did life look like directly after college in trying to get a job and deciding what you want to do? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was fortunate. Initially, I was in a program called the Inroads Program, which was a program for minority students who had good potential. And during my college years, I interned with a great company, Allstate Insurance Company, which many who are listening to this podcast will know. But even though that was a great company, I knew I wanted to be get in finance. So I was fortunate upon graduating from Oberlin, I got a job at a regional investment bank, McDonald Investments here in Cleveland. And just worked with a tremendous group of people led by Tom O'Donnell and Bill Summers, Bob Cluttermuck, Mark Summers, just a tremendous group of people. And they gave me the opportunity of my life because I joined McDonald as a junior research analyst supporting two senior analysts. One was covering the banking sector, the other was covering the thrifts. And at that time, banks and thrifts were separate, and now they're pretty much the same. And in 1990, the bank analyst, a guy by the name of Chip Dixon, who was a tremendous mentor of mine and and continues to be a friend, he decided to leave the firm in 1990. And of course, in 1990, we had a real estate crisis. And so the director of research decided that they wanted to try to hire someone to replace CHIP in the fall of 1990, but there were no takers given the economic uncertainty. And then you fast forward to early 91, they said, well, Fred, since we can't hire anyone, why don't you go out to New York and meet with some of our institutional clients? And I did that, and those meetings went well. And then they said, well, why don't you go to Boston? You meet with Fidelity, Putnam, Wellington, and some of our other clients. And that was like in March or April of 91. Those meetings went well. And they said, all right, Fred, the job is yours. We're going to promote you from junior analyst to be our bank analyst at the tender age of, I was 24 years old at the time, Matt, and didn't have any facial hair. And And I became the lead bank analyst at uh, McDonald Investments. And so for the young people listening to this, sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. You got to be in the right place at the right time. But having said that, I was given that opportunity uh, based on the strong work ethic that I show. And so the powers that be at McDonald had great faith in me uh, based on the work that I exhibited. And I was also, and it really helped that I covered some of the best banks in the country. Fifth Third Bank in Cincinnati at the time was thought to be maybe the best bank in the country. Covered Charter One Financial, a national bank in Detroit, Michigan, which also had a great credit culture. So I was trained by some of the best bankers in the country, and that training really helps me to this day. And so I was given a great opportunity at a young age. And then I, at one point, I thought I was going to go back to school to pursue my MBA. Man, and, and, I, and I just said, I got to execute. And that 
I lasted as the senior bank analyst from 1991 through 2006. And then I ended up leaving Key Bank. Key had acquired McDonald Investments back in 1998. And I and they decided that they were going to go in a different direction. They no longer really wanted to focus on banks. So I ended up leaving in January of 07. And I, then I founded Elizabeth Park Capital in February of 08. So those are great memories, Matt, that uh, when I look back on my career and going from a junior analyst to the lead analyst and now, you know, running my own business. Sure. Talk to us a little about your thrust in this position at 24, which was probably a big career leap, or at least sounds like it was a big career at the time, maybe not expecting you as much. Like, how did you, and this is maybe for some people that are a little bit younger listening to this podcast, given that first big kind of responsibility, it may be a little bit intimidating. How did you gain the confidence to really take it and run with it at that time? What was your mindset? Yeah, Matt, my mindset was really don't make any big mistakes. <laughs> and that was not me. And then really listen and learn from the other senior analysts on staff, because we had a number of other analysts covering different sectors who had a lot of experience who took me under their wings and gave me advice on how to become an effective a sell-side research analyst. And then lastly, Matt, you really just have to learn and perfect the business and become a real professional. And when you're an analyst, that means you got to read a lot. You got to read a lot and really become an expert in what you do. And I spent a lot of time reading 10Qs, 10Ks, spent a lot of time interacting with management teams, and that was my approach to try to develop a good fundamental process by which I would analyze the banks. And then I and then I frankly I read some of my competitors, their research, and I learned learned from them as well. And so collectively by doing all of those things, and as I mentioned earlier, I covered some of the best banks in the country. And that's the best group to learn from. It's the management teams that you follow. And I'd spoke with my investment bankers as well. So I was really fortunate, again, to work with a tremendous group of people. But the key was saying, don't make big mistakes. And then most importantly, for a young person, you want to be fundamentally sound. And what that means when you're covering bank stocks is you got to understand credit quality because that typically that's the only way you lose money in banking. Up until recently, we didn't have bank runs driven by fears and social media uh, back then. And so banks only failed if they had major credit problems. And so I really focused on, and I use this process today, soundness, profitability, and growth. And that is you got to focus on the soundness of the balance sheet, which is credit quality, capital, liquidity, which is a big issue today. Then you focus on profitability, return on equity, return on asset. And then lastly, you focus on growth. So how quickly can they bank grow its loans its deposits. And so developing a fundamentally sound process was critically important early on to help me become an effective sell-side analyst when I was much younger. For sure. And, and you know, we're recording this in early May and the regional banks have, have been in the news. So we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. And I think this podcast will probably come out maybe a little delayed, but I still want to hear your thoughts on that in a little bit. But before we get into that, you decide to start up your own business in, I think you said, February 2008, Elizabeth Park Capital Management. 
I'm guessing you could see some things of uh, maybe you didn't see exactly what was coming later in the year at the time, but maybe there were some cracks in the system at the time. What caused you to say, hey, now's the time I want to start up a business that invests in banks? Yes. I had always wanted to allocate capital. And then I said I wasn't getting any younger because I was about 40. I was over 40 at the time. And I spoke with my wife and I said, love with you. I really want to start my own business. And we had two young kids at home and she said, I support you. She said, I, I'll go back to work if necessary. Cause she was a stay at home mother to teach her kids how to speak Japanese. And, and she said, yeah, you should do it. And so without her support, I wouldn't have done it. And so I really cherish that to today, but I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And when you, and then I wasn't getting any younger. I said, even though it was a very challenging time, I said, I just, I have to find a way to get this business off the ground. And I was fortunate in that I met a Oberlin grad and, and, and actually he, at the time he was like Oberlin board member, a guy named Neil Barsky. And he decided to back me and he made an investment in Elizabeth Park, which really provided me with three years of working capital. So I really man, had three years to get the business growing. And so we started it with $3 million under management. And then I had some working capital from uh, Neil, who's still my partner today. And we had to execute. I had to execute in a very challenging time. And you asked, what did we see? Because clearly the housing market was red hot now. And what we fundamentally understood when you're a bank investor is that typically credit problems arise from the fastest growing asset class. And the fastest growing asset class back then was housing. And then there was a residential construction. And what we did was simply rank the banks by their residential construction portfolio. And we said, Banks who have above average exposure are potential shorts. Banks who have below average exposure are potential longs. <laughs> and so, and that's how we started. And we differentiated balance sheets that way. And then you looked at which markets these banks were operating in, because of course, some of the companies operating in Southeast, Florida, Georgia, and then you look at California, Las Nevada. Those markets were in Arizona. They were way overheated. These banks had big exposures to construction and land development in an overheated market. The probability that they would have credit issues was quite high. And so you shorted them. And then you went long banks who had below average exposures who were operating in pretty boring type markets, even slow growth like markets, even like Hawaii, Bank of Hawaii, blue chip bank, low credit risks, and then Commerce Bank shares in Kansas City, blue chip bank. And there were others, Prosperity Bank in Texas, who all went through the crisis without cutting their dividends, and many of whom did not even receive TARP capital, which supported the banks during the uh, bailout. But it was that process, Matt, just being fundamentally sound, and then you make a, a call, and that really helped us. We got off to a great start in 08 and 09, and and that gave us some momentum to help us raise additional capital for the fund. Sure. Sounds like a little bit right place, right time, but you guys had a, a great process in place that got you off to a good start. Where was kind of that inflection or point? And maybe if you remember a story from it where you said like, oh, we've kind of made it, like we made it through or this business is really starting to take off. When was that for Elizabeth Park? Yeah, I think that was probably a, after 2009, because after getting through those first two years, then you got through the banks bottomed in March. And you know this, Matt, March of 09, the market bottomed. And then you had the tailwind. And so we had headwinds before. Once the market bottoms, you get a tailwind. 
then you can breathe a sigh of relief. And so by the end of 2009, I said, yeah, we're going to be, we'll be able to build a business because we got through the worst part of the crisis. Now we have a tailwind, even though there's still some economic uncertainty in terms of how fast the U.S. economy would recover, it was nevertheless recovering. And all the stresses in the financial markets had really moderated significantly. And you had pretty good visibility about being able to make money. And then, frankly, we started attracting more assets as well. And so that's where we really felt that we we're going to be successful. And when we started to expand our operations, I had hired a junior analyst, Michael Bartlett, in May of 08. And then we hired a second analyst in 2010. And so, Matt, we started building out the operations in 2010 after gaining more confidence in the business's viability. Now, talk to us about the progression of Elizabeth Park, kind of where you're at in, say, 2010-ish, and then kind of through the 2010s and where you're at today. Yeah, so we were probably a three-person firm in 2010. Then we really inflected in 2013 where we started attracting institutional capital Morgan Stanley Alternatives came out to see us in the spring of 2013. And they said, Fred, we like your investment process, but you got to institutionalize the firm. You need a chief operating officer. So we hired a chief operating officer in early 2013, and that led to an investment from Morgan Stanley. And then in 2014, we hired a third analyst, a guy, David Mogaisky, outstanding analyst who's based in Michigan, former client and a great friend. Hired him in 2014. We hired an internal marketing person, I think, in 2014 as well. And then we subsequently hired two more analysts. And so the team now, we have four senior analysts. We have a head of marketing. We have a chief operating officer. And we, we just got into the private equity business. We recently, with this mission-driven bank fund, a mandate that is supported by Microsoft and Truist. They want to raise a $500 million to a billion to be invested in minority-owned banks. And I should take a step back to say that we added a second product, which is our bank consolidation fund around 2016 to really take advantage of the long-term consolidation trends that occur in the banking sector. And that's been a successful product. So we like it that that we're more diversified now. So we have a long short fund. We have our bank consolidation fund. We, again, just entered the private equity business with this mission-driven bank fund. And then, frankly, last year, we given understanding that banks have some needs to adopt technology to help them compete more effectively against the money, the larger banks. We launched in partnership with a company called Strategy Capital, a bank tech consortium fund really is to help smaller banks learn more about technology to improve their operations, both on the revenue side and the expense side and client service side. And so we're excited about that. So we're more diversified now. We're doing a lot of different things. And and I have a great team, and we're very excited about our future. That's great. You know, we kind of brought ourselves up to the present, and we didn't schedule this podcast thinking that regional banks would be thrown into disarray. But <laughs> maybe we've reached that point. We can kind of dive into that and say, you know, hey, 
What are your thoughts there with an eye towards we don't want to you know upset compliance. So if you don't want to get into specific names or whatnot, feel free. It's up to you. But what are your thoughts there with what's going on? There's just been so much turmoil over the last couple of months. Love to hear your perspective. Yeah, Matt, I think fundamentally what we have here is a crisis of confidence. And due to the failures of a few banks who had unique business models, notably Silicon Valley, who's really focused on private equity and banking, the venture capital sectors, and they had a very concentrated deposit base, a lot of large uninsured deposits. And then you look at Signature, who also recently fell, which is, they were primarily a real estate bank, but they did get into crypto banking. And so they had a lot of digital assets, which is also volatile at a customer base. And so those two banks fell, and that caused a contagion risk across the industry. And even as recently as last week, another large bank, First Republic, fell, and, and they too had significant exposure to venture capital, private equity banking, but they were a blue chip bank. And so some of it's related to the concentrated deposit mix that these institutions had. But a big part of it is it's a function of also of how they invested their deposits into longer duration assets, either bonds or mortgages. And when customers need their cash, you, just, you can't sell those assets at a profit now since interest rates have gone up, which is a really byproduct of the Fed's policy. So there are a lot of moving parts, but nevertheless, taken together, we now have a crisis of confidence in banking. Most importantly, we, we just passed the first quarter earnings and most banks did not see any unusual level of deposit runoff. So most banks in this country are operating from a position of trust with their customers, and they have not lost a lot of deposit dollars. Having said all of that, there's still some uneasiness in the marketplace. And then part of it's driven by short sellers. Even though we are short sellers, there's been some claims that some in the investment community are manipulating stock prices and feeding inaccurate stories to the press so that they can benefit. But there's a great deal of concern about liquidity. The government has taken the appropriate steps with respect to allowing banks to pledge a certain assets so that they can borrow from the Fed. And that has alleviated some of the concerns. And as I alluded to earlier, when banks reported first quarter results here in April, most banks had modest deposit runoff albeit the cost of deposits are clearly increasing as a result of where we are in the rate environment. And most banks have a lot of capital. And most importantly, today at least, banks don't have any real material credit risk, although that's something that we're watching closely. So Matt, I think this is more a crisis of confidence and something probably has to be done with respect to FDIC insurance. And we're going to see where that goes. But one proposal that came out recently, which I think makes a lot of sense is to provide unlimited insurance coverage for operating accounts. Those are the business accounts that businesses rely on to pay salaries and rents and and their normal business operations. And and I think that would be a good solution. I don't know if we're going to get unlimited deposit insurance across all deposit accounts. I don't think that's likely, particularly 
you would need Congress to pass the legislation for that to happen. But I, I think this concept of having unlimited deposit insurance for operating accounts makes a lot of sense for businesses to give them a peace of mind, and that would help stabilize the system. But there is a great deal of uncertainty. You see tremendous volatility in stocks, and now banks are trading what historically has been an attractive entry point, that is that tangible book value. And when banks trade a tangible book, they normally do well after that because if you're a profitable company, you should not trade. If you're a profitable bank, that is, you should not trade below a tangible book. And we will see if we're close to a trough. So when you and I speak again, or even informally over the six to nine months from now, we might be speaking where we had this podcast with Banks Bottom. <laughs> and so we'll, <laughs> we'll see. But there is a lot of uncertainty. And I would say that the, most banks are tremendously healthy. Most banks have strong liquidity. They're very well capitalized. But this crisis of confidence is tough to deal with because when depositors see a bank stock price decline by 30 40% in a given day, that causes them to get concerned. And then they say, well, maybe I should take my money out. And that is a very difficult issue to address. And so we hope that over time, the fundamentals stabilize and we won't have this much volatility on an even intraday basis. These stocks can be unbelievably volatile. So we see really good risk reward right now because you have a lot of selling pressure that's not being distinguished based on a bank's fundamentals. And normally that presents opportunity when you have broad-based selling and not differentiated based on a company's fundamentals. And we see opportunities there. We like the fact that the industry's dividend yield is near an all-time high at about 4.3% for the largest banks, which is quite attractive. And again, banks are trading at tangible book value and assuming they can go through this credit crisis without losing money, we could very well be near a trough in valuations. So is it a fair classification to say you're maybe cautiously optimistic right now that maybe early stages of excitement for the returns in the asset class? Yes, that's a great characterization of it because the big uncertainty is that the economy is clearly slowing as a result of the Fed tightening policy and with rates having increased, I think, 500 basis points over the last year. And the economy is clearly slowing, even though the consumer right now is in really good shape. Unemployment is exceptionally low. Credit conditions have clearly tightened. It's going to be tougher for businesses to get credit. And the big overhang from a credit standpoint, of course, is the real estate markets, specifically office. And the pandemic changed things dramatically <laughs> from a demand side. People now have much more flexibility and they are choosing to work from home. And that's caused demand for office space to decline. And that means a decline in prices. And, and then you have cap rates that are increasing. And so there are big issues there, and that's going to take some time to work out. And fortunately for the banks, the industry, office is only about 5% alone, so it's at a manageable level. But nevertheless, there will be losses. And my sense, Matt, is that the regulators and the banks, they're going to try to work with borrowers over time, and that'll be the key. 
this can play out over time. Interest rates might come down and you can work with a borrower. You can allow them to extend the maturity. Or frankly, you don't even have to take the rate up fully to the market rate. You can give them a discounted rate so that they can continue to service the debt. So that's how I think it's going to play out. But we're going to learn a lot more in the next three months because our understanding is that the regulators are talking to the banks about their office portfolios, how they're valuing it. And if they don't force banks to take premature write-downs, this would be a manageable situation for the industry as a whole. Switching gears here, on a personal front, you know, I've been a successful business owner, family, I think kids probably a little bit older now. What do you enjoy doing in your free time right now on a personal front? Well, I love watching the Cleveland Cavaliers. And unfortunately, got lost in the playoffs, Matt, New York Knicks. So I we had a great season. So I'm a big sports fan. Love watching the Cavs. Of course, I'm a huge Browns fan. My wife and I, we love to travel. In fact, I'm in Maui. Matt's in Cleveland. Hopefully, the weather's nice there, Matt. <laughs> it's getting and, better. <laughs> but yeah, we, we like spending time here on Maui. And then we like to travel. And then we love going to Broadway shows. And Matt, I got to tell you, and you, you got to take your wife and get a babysitter. We went to New York to see MJ Broadway show, Michael Jackson. And it really focused on the dangerous tour. It was simply outstanding. And what I was most amazed by, and I'm always amazed by when I see these Broadway performances, is the level of talent these young people have. The lead character playing Michael Jackson, he was absolutely fabulous. I mean, you know, Michael Jackson was such a unique dancer. You'd say no one can emulate that. But this young guy, it looked like he was really my, and he could sing. And we just so thoroughly enjoyed that. So we like one Broadway shows and that one was so good. I think we're going to go back to see it. So yeah, so we we like traveling. We like to dine out, going to dine out. We love going to Broadway shows and and then I love I love watching sports. And I have to say since I'm from Cleveland, I'm from Akron, I'm still a LeBron James fan because so I'm rooting for the Lakers now that the Cavs are no longer in the playoffs. I'm rooting for the Lakers because I'm still a LeBron James fan. <laughs> I feel like it's become, you know, there's, there's different sides of the coin to that with people from Cleveland these days, but that's fun to hear. Well, we're getting to the point of the podcast where we do what's kind of a, a lightning round. And you already took a lightning round question from me, which is what is the best show you've recently seen? So I appreciate that tip. But yeah. you okay if I ask you some other kind of lightning round quick fire yes. questions? Yes. Okay. Some guests haven't had an answer to this first question, but I know you have to have one because you're a sports guy and you played football in college. What is a nickname that you have, if you can share it on the podcast? Well, it was Fast Freddy or Freddie C. Fast Freddy, I like it. Yeah, Fast Freddy. I used to be a pretty good 40-yard dash, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. If you're a cook, what's your favorite recipe to cook? I'm very simple steak. (laughs) I like it. Midwest steak and potatoes. I like it. Me too. Best book about investing or finance? Well, I would say it's not even a book. It's the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Reports. You read those, you're going to be unbelievably well-versed. And there's nothing better than reading the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Reports. Profession you would be in right now if you weren't an investor? Teacher, I love working with kids. What subject? You know what I think, man, I probably do math. Or frankly... And then I'd love to be a coach on the football team. 
but just loved working with uh, young people. Probably I'd be a math teacher. Sounds like you and your wife travel a lot, so this may be a tough one. What's on the bucket list for your travel destination that you haven't been to yet that you want to get to in the near future? We want to go to Australia. We've never been to Australia, so we want to go to Australia, go to the Outback. That's a long flight, but you're almost halfway there. You're in Hawaii, so maybe but That's true. You're... That's what I got to do one time. Take us some more time off, man. I'm working too hard. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a hidden talent? No. No, I do not. I don't even sing in the shower in that dad. So. <laughs> what is your favorite lunch spot in Cleveland? Flower on the east side on Chagrin Boulevard. That's my go-to spot. They do a great job. I know it well. That is a good spot. What's your favorite way to exercise right now when you have time? Oh, I love runs. So I'm a runner. Even though I don't run fast, I do compete in 5Ks, Matt. So I like running. And then when I'm here on Maui, I love to swim. I try to swim a half mile in the pool every other day. You're a Cleveland sports fan, so kind of a two-parter here. What's your most memorable Cleveland sports moment and most disappointing Cleveland sports moment? Oh, the easiest, the most memorable was when we won the NBA championship in 16. That, that, that was clearly... Coming down 3-1 to beat the Warriors, nothing is better than that. Only if, if we had won a couple more titles, that would have been better. And then clearly the Biner fumble against Denver and when we were headed to the Super Bowl. That is by far the most disappointing sports experience I've had being a, a Browns fan. <laughs> what is your favorite thing to do in Cleveland? Well, actually, I think it's going to Playhouse. We love going to Playhouse. And we love going to the shows. So that's clearly one of our things that we most enjoy. We love going to the playhouse. And, and then the park systems are wonderful as well in Cleveland. But I'd say going to the playoffs where my wife and I, we've, and with our family, we've really enjoyed doing that. And last question of the rapid fire. What is a favorite hidden gem that not a lot of people in Cleveland know about that you think they should know about? Oh, my. That is... <laughs> That is a tough question. Well, there is a new place in Chagrin Falls. Actually, I, I'd say Cuffs in Chagrin Falls is a men's and women's clothing store, but they also sell great wine. And so I'm going to say that's a hit gem. Yeah, you go to Cuffs and you can find some really good wine. And I like doing that on the weekends, Matt. That is definitely a hidden gem because I live about seven minutes outside of Chagrin and I don't even know about that one. So <laughs> I'm going to take you up on that tip. Oh, yeah. All right. No, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fred, it's been really fun talking with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast and best of luck in the future. Oh, thank you, Matt. And then, then we'll look forward to sharing some wine together at some point. You got it. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance, brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland, attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.